let's pray. God, we just want to tell you thank you. God, I, I, I fully believe with all my heart right now in one accord, everybody sitting in this place right now, God, every one of us tell you thank you. I don't think there's a one of us in here to tell you anything but thank you, God. There's, there's every kind of trial, every kind of problem, every kind of heartache, every kind of situation, every kind of sickness, disease, loss of family members, God. There's every kind of suffering that could possibly take place sitting right here in this room. And not one of us wants to tell you anything but thank you, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. God, thank you for holding us up. Thank you for, for being in our midst always, God. Lord, thank you for each other. Thank you for the prayers of each other, God, as we continually get text messages from church members that say, hey, just want you to know we're praying for y'all. And God, it makes all the sense in the world to I me mean, how we can look back at some of the things we faced in the past few weeks and, and God, it just it, how grace has carried us through, but it's just answered prayers, God. Thank you for... Lord, everybody in this church, Father, for all of us that, that pray together for one another, God, we just want to tell you thank you. God, I pray you'd take this word tonight. I pray you'd help us to, to look into it. I pray you'd teach us something, God. Give us something that would help us, God, that'd help us be a better servant. Something that just give us a little more knowledge, Father. We just want to know more about you. We want to know more about your word. We want to know more about your, your book. We want to know more about Jesus, God. I pray you'd help us tonight to learn something. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you guys want to open your Bibles, Acts chapter 13, last week we went ahead and, and rounded it off and left it at a nice even 13. We ended at 13, 13. That's a good place to leave off for a week, right? It said that when Paul and his company loose from Paphos, they came to Persia and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So we saw that that was the first time that, that it was called Paul and his company. Um, we see it kind of take a turn there, and we've already looked at the issue of John Mark leaving, possibilities of why. But verse number 14 says that when they departed from Persia, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. In case you weren't here last week, we looked briefly at that. I know these are missionaries called out of the church at Antioch, but that was Antioch of Syria. That's a different location. Here they are um, at Antioch in Pisidia, the region of Tarsus where Saul was from. Verse number 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, sent unto them saying, so this is the rulers at the synagogue. They have gone into the synagogue, into the, 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 the church, if you will, the synagogue there at Antioch of Pisidia, and they've, they've gone through all of the, the rituals of the morning, their regular thing, and there at the end, they asked Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and his company, those with them, and said, if you have any word of exhortation from the people Say on. They, they saw these men. They said, we invite you. If you've got exhortation, if you've got something good to say, you've got something good to tell us, we, we encourage you men to, to stand up and say on to the people. And Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. So Paul stands up and he says, all you men of Israel, if you believe in the one true living God, I do have something to say and I want you to pay attention. You guys can be seated. We're going to Look at a few of these verses one at a time. We talked last week about how hazardous the traveling conditions would have been. And to go by coast, you had the pirates and how you had thieves and vagabonds and the trails that went all throughout the mountains. And some said maybe that was why John Mark left was because of the danger in the traveling. But Paul knew all about that. Saul, he would have been Saul at the time. But he grew up in this region, so he knew all about the thieves. He knew about the hazards. But Paul's not a man that's worried about 
dangers. Now, he didn't go looking for dangers. He wasn't going out looking. I mean, we can see from the text that he didn't mind dying for Jesus, if that's what it took. He didn't have a fear of dying for the Lord Jesus Christ, but he didn't go jump off of a cliff and holler, Lord, catch me. He didn't go out looking to be a martyr, but if that's what it took, he wasn't worried. So he just went out to preach the gospel because being from this region, he knew the lawlessness of this region. He knew the problems of this region. He knew the people that lived there. He knew the the ones in the area and how much they needed Christ. So the Bible tells us that traveling north from Persia would bring him up to, to Antioch. Now, when you get to Antioch there, there is a Jewish population, and obviously based on the text, there is a synagogue there. Now, because Paul is a trained Jewish rabbi, he, he is a graduate, if you will, from, from Gamaliel in Jerusalem, the training center there for rabbis. He is like a, a doctorate degree from one of the most prestige Bible colleges. He has all of this knowledge. He is a well-trained speaker. So, so you can be assured that when Paul comes into a synagogue in a place like this, I mean, Pisidian, it's not, this is a little town off the beaten path. This is where you had to travel through those dangerous paths to get to it. It's not just every day somebody from Jerusalem shows up here in this particular Antioch, especially not somebody as gifted as the Apostle Paul, not somebody that that has come up in, in the synagogue and has all this teaching. So when you get somebody like Paul shows up, you can rest assured he's going to be given an opportunity to speak. This is like, it would be like if, well, if Billy Graham showed up here on Sunday morning, we'd all be shocked, right? But, but if he was still here, he would be like if Billy Graham were to show up here on a Sunday morning. But I don't know why you're here, brother, but I know you got a message. I mean, I couldn't imagine him showing up here on a Sunday morning and not being at least given an opportunity to, to speak, to put something out there and to, to bring exhortation to the people. And so that's, that's what happens with Paul here. They say, Mr. you man got something to say. Go ahead and stand up. So, so Paul and his company, they, they've gone in. They, they, they sat down at the synagogue and... It says, verse number 15, that after the reading of the law, the prophets ruled the synagogue, said, you men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, people say on. Paul's plan is simple. We, we've talked about it. We've looked at it briefly. But we see it throughout his ministry. When Paul goes into one of these new regions and he goes into a new city and there's a synagogue there, Paul always goes in to this Jewish synagogue first. Now, now there is a reason why he would go In there, Christianity and Judaism has some things in common. They both believe in the one true and living God. I'm not saying they're the same because you got the Jews, their religion at this point is now obsolete. They have officially rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Their leaders have rejected Christ. All of those around the leaders have rejected Christ. They they are simply blinded by their traditions. Those things were of God, the Old Testament, but all of it has been fulfilled in Christ. So they're blinded by tradition. They're being kept blinded by the elders and the religious leaders of the church. They're buried in the rituals of their past. So they still have their Judaism, and it's, it's alive and well, but they did believe in the one true God. So there is a common ground based on the Gentiles who never had that God and many didn't believe in that God. When he comes in, at least those in the synagogue, the common ground is two things. One, they do believe in the one true and living God, and they are looking for a Messiah. 
Now, they're looking for someone who has already come, but at least they're looking for a Messiah, so that helps, right? To come in and know there's some common ground. So, so the, the synagogue is the perfect place to start. The Jews would gather there every Sabbath. They would come in. They would have the reading of the law and the prophets. They'd have the reading of the scriptures. It was very formal, very ritualistic. Everything was done exactly according to plans. And, and then they would have someone speak. And if, again, if you had somebody like Paul and Barnabas, that certainly would be them. So it wouldn't take long, as we'll see when Paul goes into these synagogues, it doesn't take him long to infuriate the leaders. It doesn't take them long to, to realize we shouldn't have let this man speak. It doesn't take them long to get mad and throw Paul out. But by the time Paul goes out, he's already presented the gospel. He's already made some converts in Christ, and he's already taken a core group out, and now he starts a church in the cities. So, so there is a plan. Verse number 16, that Paul stood up beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. We're not talking about a soft-spoken man. We're not talking about a man that's a little bit scared to ruffle feathers. We're, we're not talking about somebody that is intimidated when he stands up. We're talking about Saul, who, who was a leader, and now the apostle Paul, who is the disciple of Christ, who is the apostle, he stands up and he takes control of the opportunity to speak, and he says, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers, exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought he them out of it. So Paul begins his sermon, just like when Peter begins a sermon, just like we saw when Stephen preached a sermon, he, he begins at the beginning. It, it was Israel's, he begins with Israel's mission and how they were God's people and he will deal with Israel's mistake and how they, they backslid and failed God and then he'll move on into Israel's moment, how they were carried into the promised land and delivered the things of God. So Paul begins to review how God has dealt with Israel in the past. I mean, what a better way to gain the attention of an audience than to talk about things that you agree on that you already know, right? Because right out of the bat, you know people are thinking, probably some are thinking pessimistically, this man's come in, they may have heard things about him, but right out of the, right out of the gate, you start talking about things we agree on. We all know that that the Jews are God's people. We all know how they were in slavery. We all know how they're in bondage. We all know how how God brought them out. So he begins talking about things that they agree on, kind of reels them in. You know, before you can get a fish to bite, you've got to get him to sniff your worm, right? You've you got, you got to have it out there for a minute. So he starts with Egypt, and he talks about the oppression and how there were centuries of, of exile, and they were, they were kept away from the promised land that, that God had promised. And you've got years of persecution and years of slavery, years of, of bitterness. And, and he talks about that, but then he says that God with a high arm brought them out of it. The arm of God is a symbol of God's omnipotent. Psalms chapter 8 verse 3 tells us that creation is a work of God's fingers. It says, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. The hand of God is a symbol of power. Isaiah chapter 40 says in verse 12, who hath measured the waters with the hollow of his hand, meted out the heaven with the span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and the balance. I mean, can can, can we even try to imagine that, that God can hold all of the seas and all the oceans in the palm of his hand? I mean, can we even remotely fathom how awesome God is? How big God is that he can hold all of the oceans here? 
How he can take all of the mountains of the earth and all things we know and put them in a scale and weigh them. Can we even remotely imagine how God could span the heavens with his hand? Think of all the galaxies and all the universe. With the greatest telescopes we got, we can see, what, millions of light years, however far it is that we can see out, all they see it, and we, we can't even begin to see what's out there. And it says that God spanned it with his hands, that God could be that great, that big, and that awesome, but yet God is so small that he can live right here, that he can walk with me every day, talk with me every day, help me every day, Teach me every day that God is so great that he can form universes, that he can make anything. For all we know, there's another universe somewhere just like the earth today. I mean, if God is creator God, who is, who is simplistic-minded enough to think this is all God ever made? I mean, this is the best God can do, the creator of the universe? I'm not naive enough to believe that. I don't think we're the first. I don't think we'll be the last. I mean, if he's creator God, then God only knows what he has done, but we know what he can do, right? And, and yet that God that is creator universe that, that does all things takes time to stop and listen when you and I pray. There, there's no way to fathom all of the greatness of God, but the hand of God is a symbol of his power. So Paul reminds him with a high arm brought he them out of it. God raised his arm against Pharaoh. God brought the plagues in against the Pharaoh. See, all Pharaoh could see when, when Moses came and said, let God said, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, what? <laughs> You're kidding, right? You're you going to come in here. Have you seen my gods? Have you seen these big old statues I've got built? I mean, do you know who we are? Do you know who I am? I mean, I'm, I'm Pharaoh. I can have you snuffed out just because I want to. And you want me to what? See, the problem was Pharaoh looked at the Jews and all he saw was, was slaves. All he saw was unimportant people. All he saw was somebody that was just wasted space on the earth. And what he did not see was the God behind the Jews. What he didn't see was the power of the God behind the Jews. You and I got the same God. Doesn't matter what the world sees in you and I. Doesn't matter what the world thinks about you and I. We have that same God that is our power. We have that same God that is our sufficiency, that is our provision, our protector, our supplier, the one who has a promised land prepared for us that'll take there. Same God. It ought to amaze us to take back and look and realize and see what all God for, did for them and realize that we have the same God. Verse number 18, Paul reminds them, that after God delivered them and got them out in the wilderness about how they treated God, about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. What, what Paul is saying right there is God put up with them for 40 years. God put up with their attitude for 40 years. God put up with their complaining, their whining, their murmuring, their, their wanting to go back to what they asked God to deliver them from. He listened to their rebellion. He put up with their criticism. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how God is so patient with us? Here's the reality. God, God is patient with them as infants, waiting on them to grow up. We have to go through trials. You know, they had to go through some trials. They had to go through some things. You and I have to go through some things. We got saved. We were infants in Christ, right? Babes in Christ. So we had to learn faith. Faith didn't come for free. 
You don't have faith for free. You have faith because you are in faith. God's done some things for you. God's shown up in your life. God's done some things in your past. You've seen God answer prayers. Faith came at a price. Faith came at a cost. We, we learned it, and, and I say it, I know all the time, but faith is only as big as the greatest thing we've ever been brought through. In order for faith to get greater, you got to go through something greater. I don't know about y'all. I'm pretty content. Just keep mine. Where's that? I don't want to go through nothing no bigger than I've been through. So just let me keep mine right here. Let's just keep it simple. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't need to be no bigger if that's what it takes. But, but faith is earned. I don't know where I was going with all that, but I was having a good time going there until I got lost. So, so God put up with them for 40 years and all their complaining. That's what, that's what he's telling them. Then he fast forwards at the end of the 40 years after the long suffering of God. and says that when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided to them their land by lot. Seven nations that were stronger than the Jews. Seven nations living in the promised land that was mightier than the Jews. Seven nations, some of them were walled cities within the promised land that God had promised that, that were larger than the Jews. Israel didn't win the promised land by their own might. Israel didn't win the promised land because they had the greatest army on earth. Israel didn't win the promised land because of their own strength and their own sufficiency. They won the promised land because God gave it to them. We, we got our own promised land. God gave us land. The stories behind the land and everything about the land and how God's used the land and how God's still using the land and what God's going to do to help us reach this town with the gospel of Christ is amazing. We have our own stories. Not, not just land here, but land. Our, our own lives, the things that we've been through, that we've seen God do and seen God show up. And many times, just like with the nation of Israel, in spite of us, in spite of our whining, in spite of our complaining, how, how God shows up and he drove out all the inhabitants of the land and he gave them the promised land when he had destroyed seven nations of the land of Canaan, divided to them their land by lot. So the promised land is a gift from God. He gave them the land. He got rid of the people that lived there so that they could have the land, but it still wasn't enough. They were still complainers. So then we have the judges. You move into the years of the judges. And so Paul moves right on. He says, after that, he gave judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Now, everybody in the synagogue that day, they know the law and the prophet. They've heard the law and the prophet. They know exactly what Paul is talking about in the judges and the years of the judges, the day of the judges. They know all about that. So, so Paul doesn't spend a lot of time. He doesn't camp out right there. He just mentions it, and he moves 450 years, takes a leap, just gets their mind on it, and says, but it, but it ends with Samuel the prophet. Samuel is the last of the judges. But he's the first of the prophets. It was Samuel who brought the nation of Israel back to God. It was Samuel who taught the people. He prayed for the people. He encouraged the people. God used him greatly. Samuel is God's answer to the end of the judges. So, so we, we look at, at their history. We see how their priesthood failed. We know how the monarchy there of Israel failed. And, and now we see that the period of the judges has failed. So Samuel's great mission is to clear the way for David. 
Samuel had a mission. David's coming, kind of the same as how John the Baptist had a mission. His mission was to clear the way for Jesus. Samuel ha has a mission here. But even when he came in and, and, and the people desired a king, nothing was ever enough. Chapter 13 there in verse 21, afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. Now, now here's the deal. There was nothing wrong with them desiring a king. See, in, in our life, there's a lot of things. There's nothing wrong with you desiring money. It's, it's what are your plans for the money. It's how glutton is the money. What's the purpose of the money? There's nothing wrong with you desiring a nice car. There's nothing wrong with you desiring a house. It's all about the motive. There's nothing wrong with them desiring a king. As a matter of fact, God's already promised he's going to give them a king, hasn't he? God's already promised there's a Messiah coming. There's a king of kings coming. God's already promised a king. There's nothing wrong with them desiring a king. The problem is the reason they wanted a king. They said, we want to be like the other nations. For what? You want to be like the ones God destroyed? You want to be like the ones God knocked their walls down after you marched around them? You want to be like the ones who God destroyed without even a fight and caused them to fight amongst themselves and kill themselves? It's not that they wanted a king. It's the reason that they wanted a king was the problem. Now, they decided they wanted Saul. Why do they want Saul? Because he's a man of stature. He's a big man. He's the stud. You know, he's Mac Daddy, big, tall, handsome, barely built. I mean, he's, he's the one. So that's who they wanted. God said, fine. That's what you want. That's what you can have. Big mistake. Big mistake, because God doesn't look at the stature of a man. God looks at the heart of the man. He could see the failure that was set up. And then you got David, this little shepherd boy out there. God lets them endure their own choices for a while, but God anoints a king to come. David's a little shepherd boy, but he's also a warrior. He learned how to be a warrior fighting a lion. He learned how to be a warrior fighting a bear. He, he learned how to be a shepherd fighting for the life of the sheep being a protector of the sheep. So, so God sees the heart of a man, and, and he brings David in, and David sees Israel divided and, and devastated, and he brings them together, and then God uses David to go in and conquer all the nations and, and to bring them all back together. So you have David, this, this man who wrote over half of the Psalms, and, and, and he brought order back to the priesthood there, and he provided the, the materials for the temple that Solomon would build later on. Y'all know the story, he wasn't allowed to build the temple because of the blood on his hand, but he was allowed to go ahead and make provisions and put it there. He restored worship among the people, and, and then like with everything else, there's a big difference between God's choice for king and man's choice for king. There was a huge difference between Saul and David. So he goes on and Verse number 23 says, of this man's seed, talking about David, so he's just, he's whirlwinding through it right here. Of this man, man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. He says, the Messiah that you're looking for has come. See, those listening, they knew the prophets. They, they knew some things. They knew 2 Samuel 7, 12 that said, And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, 
as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee, in thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. They, they knew Psalms 132, verse 11. The Lord hath sworn unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. They knew Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be least among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth from unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Paul says, your wait is over. You know all of these things. You know all about the lineage. You know all about the prophets. You know all about the promises. You know all about the things. But Jesus Christ is the lineage of the son of David. Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He is the son of the living God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the redeemer of man. Paul started back at the beginning and he whirled right through to get them reeled in to remind them that you're looking for somebody. You're looking for a redeemer. You're looking for a Messiah. You're looking for somebody that God's ever come. He's already come. Now, these, these people in the synagogue, they, they've heard the law and the prophets. They, they know all of the Old Testament stories. They know everything that, that Paul is talking about. They've heard about the promised Messiah all their life. But what they never heard was a man speak with such boldness and such confidence. They'd never heard it put so bluntly by a scholar of their own law that the Messiah has come. This one who graduated from Gamaliel, this one who was one of the highest up in the ranks of the Pharisees, they've never heard a man like that with that kind of teaching and that kind of training and that kind of importance say, the Messiah that you're looking for, his name is Jesus. You almost missed him, but I got good news for you. You can't miss him if you just accept him. So, so you know, if we, if we look, we got time. If we look just, just at our own lives for a minute, the reason that, that Paul is so successful at winning souls, number one, he always seeks God's direction on where to go. I have no doubt when, when they went up seven miles inland on that river off the sea and they got to that port, there was probably several places that Paul wanted to go. You know what I'm talking about? Growing up in the region, there are several cities and they all got wickedness in them. I imagine in his, in his growing up years, he could remember some things, some things that happened to him in that city and thought, boy, they need to be preached to. And he could think of some things over here, boy, they need to be preached to. I'm sure there was... There was a lot of thoughts as to which one, but what, what it takes is for the Holy Spirit to, to guide us. It, it takes a comforting. So I have no doubt that, that he waited until the Holy Spirit gave him directions on where to go. And when we do that, the field's already going to be whitened when we get there. If God sends us, this is really important in our life, if God sends us anywhere, he's already done the work. Wherever he's sending us, he already has Somebody prepared. He just needs somebody to go present the gospel. If he's sending us to here, he's already here. We've seen it all throughout the study of the book of Acts, everywhere we've looked at it. We saw it with Philip. We, we saw it, um, oh, man, uh, with, with Peter when he sent him up to Cornelius' house. God's already done the work. When he sends us to somewhere, all we got to do is be faithful to go and know that God already has a reason to get there and, and then to know that God's going to work through us when we get there. We really don't have to do anything but go. But we have to go to the right place. 
Does that make sense? We, we, we can go to the wrong place if we just decide to do things the way we want to do things. I, I've had I a mean, per, perfect example within our own lives right here. I've had a few conversations lately about Judgment Journey. I realize a lot of people want to do Judgment Journey. Every one of the lot of people that want to do Judgment Journey are on the staff of Faith Baptist Church. There's not a staff member in this church that does not want to do Judgment Journey. There was not a staff member in this church that didn't want to do it this year. There's not a staff member in this church that hadn't sat through meetings after meetings, not all staff meetings, but judgment journey meetings, director's meetings, planning meetings, preparation meetings, financial meetings, how we're going to pay for the things we want to do, new ideas meetings, and, and, and a thing to, to literally be judgment journey 2.0 to, to possibly change the, the structure of a lot of it to make things bigger and better than it's ever been. And every time you come out of a meeting with all that excitement, but then you get home and you start praying and all that excitement begins to fade. You know why we're not having judgment journey? Because not one of us could ever get a comfort. When, when God doesn't give you a comfort that that's the place to go, don't go. It's just that simple. It doesn't matter if it sounds like a good idea. I'm sure there's a lot of places that have been a good idea right here for Paul to have went to, but God has places in mind. So, so it, the, the same thing is true in our own lives. Whatever we're looking at, whatever we're seeking, seek God's peace before you make a move. And if God don't give you the peace, don't make the move. It's just that simple. That, that's really, I can't tell you that God speaks like this thundering voice out of the clouds and it sounds like an audible voice, but God will give you a peace in your heart. Yes, God will give you things to do. God will speak to you, but so will the devil. Hello. God will speak to you, but so will the enemy. And, and I'll be honest, both of those voices in my head, they sound a lot like me. So, so if the voice isn't in line with this book, right off I know it's not God. But, but if I have a question and, and I feel like there's a direction, then, then you begin to, to seek God's direction. And if God wants us to go somewhere or do something, God will give us a, a confidence in it. Another thing that, that I see here is the simplicity of the story. Paul, Paul doesn't go in quoting a bunch of scriptures right here. He, Paul's a, Paul is the most educated man in that building that day. I guarantee that. Without even knowing who's there, you can guarantee from reading in the Scriptures, Paul is the most educated man in that building. He doesn't try to wow anybody with his knowledge. He doesn't try to wow anybody with his learnings or what's there. He starts at the beginning. He reminds them of what God did for him and where he's brought them. And he says that, that God has brought us here. You've been waiting for the, for the Messiah to come. This is where it all comes through. And you know there's a Messiah promise. Your wait's over. The Messiah has come. See, that's all we have to do. Our beginning doesn't have to go back thousands of years. Ours just goes back to the day we were saved. That's all we got to do is start at the beginning. This is who I was. This is all I know to tell you. This is who I was. I asked Jesus to save my soul. This is what happened, and this is where I am. And he'll do the same thing for you. you, you the problem is people want to feel it now. They, 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 they want, they want the, that now. They want that understanding now. I, I told somebody within the past month, probably three, three and a half weeks ago, you're not going to get it. Without Christ, you're not going to get it. I can't explain it. I can't explain what's in there, and, and you're not going to understand it until you have it. You can't, I, 
I can't explain to you what it feels like. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I can't, I, I can't really help you grasp that. You're not going to understand it until all things pass away. And behold, all things become new. You're not really going to understand it until all of your sins are forgiven. And you get that. You know that God saved you and you're going to go to heaven. And you're no longer going to hell and you're going to go to bed that night with a freshness and a newness and a confidence that you've never had. How do you explain that? You don't. You start at the beginning. This is all I know. I was lost. I was saved. And everything changed. And you can have the same thing. Now, Paul goes on, verse 24 and 25. It says that when John had first preached before his coming to the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his, his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I'm not he. But behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I'm not worthy to lose. The scriptures clearly tell of a forerunner of the true Messiah. The ministry of John the Baptist was known by all of them and accepted by the majority of them. All throughout the land, they know John the Baptist. People flocked by the thousands to hear the teaching of John the Baptist. Hundreds, if not thousands of them, believed on the teaching of John the Baptist and were baptized in the Jordan River by, by John himself. He, he proclaimed nothing more than, than make a way in the wilderness. He proclaimed that, that there is one coming mightier than I. He, he made it very clear, I, I'm not the one, but the Messiah is coming. He, he told them who he was. He said, I'm not who you're looking for, but he's coming. And, and, and he's coming soon. And then Jesus comes as this promised seed of David. So Paul brought John into the equation because these people sitting here in, in the synagogue that day, they would, they would have believed in John the Baptist. The majority of the Jews believed in the ministry of John the Baptist. So once again, he's reeled them back into to some common ground. And isn't it amazing isn't it amazing that so many of the Jews would have believed in John the Baptist and the teachings of John the Baptist, but not believe in the one that he taught about? Isn't that amazing? That they believe in the story. They, they believe John the Baptist. They believe his message, the message about the Messiah, but they don't believe in the Messiah. Isn't that a lot like today? People believe in a God, but they just... They don't believe in the personalness of the God. They, they don't believe in, in a Christ that, that came for them. Well, I don't really have time to, to go there and all that. Israel's mission was to bring the gospel to the world, to prepare the world for Christ it was to come. The Jews being dispersed into the land, and we looked at it after Stephen was stoned and how the church was spread out because everybody fled from Jerusalem and you had all the church at Jerusalem, all the people knew Christ. They fled to all parts. When they did, the gospel fled. So the devil thought he won something when he had Stephen martyred, but he really lost because the gospel shot out and everywhere. Well, that's the case with the Jews, period. As the Jews were scattered, the belief of, of God was scattered because the Jews are God's People, So in, in spite of their exclusivism, thinking that it's all about them and that no Gentile would ever be saved, in spite of their, their pride, in spite of their, their unbelief, and in spite of their, their hard traditions and the things that they held on to, that they still held on to their hope of the coming of the Messiah. 
they still had that hope that, that a Christ was going to come. In verse 26, Paul reels them in and, and he makes them accountable for their own self. He says, men and brethren and children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sin. Paul says Christ has come. He's been rejected by many, but now it's your turn. Christ came, he was rejected by your leaders, but now it's your turn. You've heard how it's come to other places. You've heard rumors, but it has come to your ears on this day. It has come to your house on this day. The gospel of salvation is here, and now it's time. Right here, you Jews in Antioch of Pisidia, it is time for you to decide for yourself. Every human being must decide for our own self. Amen? Verse 27, it says that he came to Jerusalem. Probably some of the saddest thoughts in the Bible. It says that they knew him not. They that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day. He says they didn't know Jesus, and they don't know the voice of the prophets. Every day you come into this synagogue. Every Sabbath day you come in and listen to the reading of it. Every Sabbath day you hear it over and over again, but they knew him not. The voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. For three and a half years, Jesus walked among them there in the ministry. For three and a half years in the ministry, he, he walked about the people. He, he taught the people. He, he talked with the people. He even talked with the Pharisees themselves. He, he showed them all things about the way. For, for three and a half years, he performed miracles every single day. So many miracles that the Word of God tells us in John 21, 25, that if they were all written, that the earth couldn't contain the books that would be written. This isn't just a handful of the miracles that Jesus did. The Bible makes us assured that he walked all about every day in front of them, healing all sickness and all disease from all places. You know, in that one day when he said, it said, it said that everybody came from all regions and he healed all sickness, there would have been hundreds, maybe thousands healed just in that day. Healed everything that come for three and a half years. He revealed himself to them. He, he demonstrated himself as being the Son of God. He preached the kingdom of God. He preached the way of salvation. He told them exactly who he was. For three and a half years, he walked there with them and he proved himself as the Messiah, the one that John the Baptist spoke of, the one that the prophets had written about, the one that, that told it was going to come and where it would come, and everything about him for three and a half years. Everything about him pointed him being the Christ. His character, his personality, if you will, his conversation, his mannerism, not one thing ever came out negative. Not one thing ever came out of sin. Everything about him pointed to him and confirmed him as being the Messiah. Yet after three and a half years, Paul says there are the Jewish leaders, they knew him not. They, they denied the scriptures. They denied the truth. In the last half of the verse, Paul says, even though they read the prophets every Sabbath day, he says they didn't, they didn't believe. What, what that says is that they are without excuse. They have the law, they have the prophet, they had everything there. They, all they had to do was check the lineage of his birth. They could easily see he was of the line of David. All they had to do was check and see, no, he's not Jesus of Nazareth, just because his parents were of Nazareth, find out where he was born. 
Find out where they were that day paying taxes. All they had to do was just a little bit of homework. All they had to do was read of all of the prophecies that, that were f- fulfilled in him. And now they're, they're past the point of the crucifixion. It's just more prophecy. All they had to look and see, it was prophesied that he'd be crucified. It was prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced. It was prophesied that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. It was prophesied that the, that the Jews, the priests, would take the 30 pieces of silver and they would buy the potter's field. Everything about it was prophesied. But it says that they knew him not. Paul said they had all they needed to believe. And they're the ones who carried out the prophets. The ones who had the prophets, the one who knew the law, the one who knew about the Messiah, the one who knew the things that would happen, they're the ones that carried it out. They're the ones that crucified him. They're the ones that pierced him. They're the ones that paid the 30 pieces of silver. They're the ones that bought the potter's field. And yet they still, although they have everything written, what they just did, they deny Jesus Christ. Paul says, now it's your turn. They had their chance. But what we tell them is, is, is now, now it's your turn. They had all they needed to believe. I wonder, I wonder what Paul would say if he came to this world today. <laughs> I wonder how sick he'd be. It, you got to think it would be like going into something worse than the worst city he ever faced back in that day. The lies, the the hypocrisy, the casual pretending Christianity, people that talk out of both sides of their mouth, play church on Sunday and play heathen on Monday, people that love you to your face and condemn you to your back, people that will hug you, put their arm around you when they're at church, but be careful during the week if they get behind you, they'll stab you and shove a knife in. I wonder what Paul would think about the the church that, that God used him to build, a, I wonder how sick he built. I wonder if, if these people at Pisidia are that accountable because of what they had, and yet they knew him not. I wonder how accountable we are in our day. I mean, with all that we have and all the teaching and all the technology, all that we've been allowed to learn. I mean, these, these people would have known the law. But, I mean, think about our lives. Think about the teaching that we've had and, and the computers and our phones and, and the 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 daily devotions that come in. Think about all the things that we, we have that they didn't have. Think about all that God's given us to make learning simple. All the things that God's given us to make the book real, to make life real, to, and to see the crucifixion and the resurrection. I wonder how accountable people in this, this day and this world are going to be when they stand before Jesus and they knew him not. Sad day. To be honest, it doesn't change it for us. Nothing changes for us. Whether they believe him. You know, when, when Paul stood that day and preached, whether they believed or not, that wasn't on Paul. Paul's job was to tell them the truth. Paul's job was to come in, establish whatever report he could, get them listening, and then present the gospel. Ours is the same. Ezekiel 33 tells us ours is the same. If we tell them, then their blood's on their own hand. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to do is tell them. From beginning to end, just tell them about Christ. If we don't tell them, and they die and go to hell, Ezekiel said that his blood's on our hands. So our whole job is just to tell them. I've got a story to tell. Y'all got a story to tell? You got a story to tell? 
You got a story to tell about one October, one October night. Everybody's got a judgment journey story. Might not have been on judgment journey. It might not be on the trail. My judgment journey story was on a Sunday morning in a Baptist church in Fayetteville. But everybody that says has got a story. Our job is to tell the story. So Paul goes in and tells them a story. Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up right there next week and, and see, see how, he, how he goes on talking to these on this missionary journey. And my prayer is that God would just strengthen us and, and help us to become missionaries. Man, I, I, don't, I don't need to be an apostle Paul. I don't need to be better than you, and you don't need to be better than me. I just need to be the best I can be. And so all I want God to do is help me be the best that I can be for him. I want him to be pleased with me. Amen. God, thank you so much. Thank you for this precious book, God, this, this love letter, or this storybook, this rule book, this devotion book, this facts book. God, this salvation book, this, this salvation story. Thank you for it, God, and thank you that, that in that book that my name was included right there where, where you spelled it out, whosoever. Thank you, God, that, that we're all whosoever. Our, our name fits that bill. Thank you so much for loving us so much. God, I pray you'd help us to be pleasing to you, God. Help us to serve you with all that we have. God, put people before us and let us live a life pleasing to you in front of them. Let them see Christ in us and Christ through us. Lord, let them tell the story. And God, I pray that you would persuade them, God, that your Holy Spirit would touch, that souls would be saved. We love you, God. We just want to be used by you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.